This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. There was an earthquake in Washington this week. No, not the kind caused by Mother Nature, but one sparked by the Supreme Court. By now, you've likely heard about the draft opinion on Roe v. Wade obtained by political, but then confirmed by Chief Justice John Roberts. The draft opinion written by conservative Justice Samuel Alito, if, if it becomes final, would mean that the Supreme Court has struck down that landmark decision banning abortion. Dahlia Lithwick covers the Supreme Court for Slate and is a frequent guest on this program. Dahlia, what are the ramifications of this draft opinion? Well, there's a couple of layers. There's ramifications in terms of women's health and reproductive rights. That's probably the single most important part. There's also very serious ramifications for the legitimacy of the court in the eyes of the public and how the court is perceived. And then even within the nine justices and their ability to trust each other and work together and believe that they can candidly uh, exchange their opinions and think through cases, there's ramifications. So this is kind of a a shockwave at, I would say, those three really profound levels, and not that the second and the third are, you know, in any way trivial, but certainly the first, which is that if this doesn't change between now and the end of June, this will have dramatic, dramatic consequences for the health and the economic equality and the just fundamental rights, uh, not just for women, but for all Americans. All right. So let's, let's go back to the basics, if you will. Let's, let's talk about what this draft opinion is. The thing that I think folks need to understand is that right after a case is argued, so in this case, this was the Dobbs uh, case, this is Mississippi's uh, 15-week abortion ban, right after the case is argued, the justices go into conference that week, and they do a kind of straw poll, and they try to get a sense as amongst themselves how they're going to vote. Nothing is final. But then the way it works at the court is that the senior justice in the majority gets to assign the opinion. And so usually that will be the chief justice if he's in the majority, otherwise the most senior person who isn't the chief justice. What probably happened after Dobbs was argued is that the chief justice wanted to do some kind of moderate 
opinion that upheld Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, but didn't go kind of swing for the fences and try to overrule Roe. In that case, the next most senior justice would have been Clarence Thomas. It looks as though he assigned it to Samuel Alito, who would have been writing for the five conservatives on the court. The draft that we are seeing, which is dated February 10th and has been authenticated by the court, the chief justice says what we saw was a real draft opinion, reflects Justice Alito, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, um, uh, Neil Gorsuch, and Clarence Thomas, their decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood, the 1992 progeny of uh, uh, Roe. And that's what we are looking at. So essentially what it means is this was an opening bid, right? Because the other justices in the majority would have had the opportunity uh, as this was circulated to say, take out that paragraph. This language is too strong. I don't love this. So this is the strongest kind of version that Justice Alito would have pushed out on behalf of those five. We also know from Politico's reporting that the three liberal justices, so Justice Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, were each dissenting. So what we don't know is what the chief justice was poised to do, although we um, heard from a different leak also on Monday night that what he really was trying to do was cobble together a narrower majority just upholding the Mississippi ban but not overturning Roe. So we don't know if he's going to vote with the dissenters. We know he's not with the majority as it's currently constituted. Just so I'm clear, if he votes with the dissenters, say, uh, does that uphold Roe v. Wade? Nope, because it's still just four. So maybe the best way to think about it is whether he votes with the five in the majority or the four in the dissent. Either way is immaterial because there's already five to strike down Roe. So unless, and this is what the whisper campaign is, unless one of most likely Amy Coney Barrett or Brett Kavanaugh pull off from that five, you will have five votes, even without the chief, to strike down Roe. Interesting. And even the chief justice uh, earlier this week said that this is not final. Um, And then it sort of started this speculation about what could happen in the days and weeks before it is final. So, What could happen that could change this draft opinion? Well, as I said, at the most narrow level, this will be, I think, probably sanded down. Some of the strongest language will come out. Um, Recall that in this opinion, as you read it, it really is a maximalist, huge swing opinion that brushes aside a lot of For instance, women's economic equality arguments says they're immaterial, has a a, a pretty snarky attack on both the draftsmanship in Roe v. Wade and the authoring of Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Um, The person who wrote part of Casey was Justice Anthony Kennedy, Brett Kavanaugh's mentor, and the person whose seat he filled. So some of the justices probably will knock off some of the really harsh language, presumably. But the question, I think the bigger question you're asking is, 
as a result of this leak, is it possible that one of Justices Kavanaugh or Barrett feel that they don't want to go this far? They're not prepared at this time to overturn precedent. It would be the first time in the history of the Supreme Court that rights are taken away rather than granted. And so I think that there is some reason to believe that part of the reason this was leaked was either to pressure them to jump back and do something a little bit less ambitious, or if it was leaked by someone on the conservative wing on the court, to stiffen their spine so that they're locked into this and they can't waver. That's probably why it was leaked. We don't know which side leaked it. But I think that the general consensus is particularly based on their questions at oral argument, that it's Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh who might be most wobbly in that five-justice majority. And obviously, if they peel off, either because they were willing to do something more moderate with John Roberts and just move what is called the viability line, it's currently at about 24 weeks, it could move to 15 weeks, which is what uh, Mississippi is asking. That's a, a much less drastic step than overturning Roe v. Wade. And so you could get some kind of consensus position that picks off five votes. But it's very, very unlikely that you're going to see any movement at all on the court that either that that um, strikes down the Mississippi law. Yeah, you you listen and you see the activity around the pro-abortion rights movement and you get the sense that it is preparing for what they might think is the worst, which means Roe v. Wade being struck down. I think that what you're hearing is not just that, and that is in some sense the worst, and I think the um, reproductive rights community has been afraid of that pretty much since the day that Brett Kavanaugh was seated at the court because he replaced Anthony Kennedy, who was the conservative justice who consistently voted to uphold Roe. So as soon as his seat was taken by Brett Kavanaugh, it was fairly clear that abortion rights were on the chopping block. I think that what folks are worried about when they read what I'm calling this very maximum big swing opinion is that other things are on the chopping block too because the same bucket of rights that includes the right to have bodily autonomy to make decisions about what to do with your body to decide who you want to marry um, to decide that you could have a same-sex marriage all of those rights are protected in the same parts of the constitution that undergird Roe v. Wade. And so I think that even though Justice Alito says explicitly in his opinion, we're just coming for Roe, this has no implications for same-sex marriage, it has no implications for um, birth control, which is the case that Roe relies on. It has no implications for the uh, interracial marriage ca case, uh, Loving. Uh, even though he asserts that, once you pull out the foundation of Roe, all of those other cases are rooted in completely shaky ground. And so I think what you're hearing generally is if this opinion survives that it is as it is currently written, it's not just that it's the end of abortion. In 22 or 24 states, abortion will immediately become illegal, but that also the laws, the constitutional decisions that 
uh, support the right for uh, gay couples to marry, that support the right to have birth control, are also on very, very, very sandy foundations. Hmm. So there could be this domino effect from this decision. That's correct. And in fact, we're already seeing this week that Texas is saying uh, maybe the public schools don't have to accept uh, children of unlawful immigrants because that too is doctrine that is rooted in these fundamental due process, unenumerated rights uh, parts of the Constitution. And so we're already seeing states start to say things like maybe we'll criminalize um, abortion, maybe fetal homicide uh, is can be a thing uh, as early as conception. So you're seeing a whole raft already of proposals, including a very robust proposal for a federal abortion ban that means we wouldn't have abortion is lawful in some states and not in others, but a federal ban would mean that it is illegal everywhere in the country. All of that feels like it could happen, as you said, because this first domino has fallen. I'm also really interested in the investigation in the Supreme Court. Who are the suspects who may have leaked this draft opinion? Are there surveillance cameras throughout the Supreme Court building? Do they monitor who's printing out what and keystrokes and things like that? What do you think, Dahlia? Who are the main suspects? Well, I should start by saying that the investigation is being undertaken by the Supreme Court's security officials itself. So the sort of marshals who are in charge of making sure that protesters on the plaza are orderly, uh, keeping order in the court. They're the folks who are spearheading this investigation. And certainly there's some very doubtful folks out there who think they do not have the kind of CSI apparatus you're talking about. They're very, very good at keeping protesters in line. So that's the first thing, um, whether they are going to be able to conduct the kind of robust, meaningful investigation you're describing. In terms of who the suspects are, I think it's really useful to remember that this past two years, the court has been working from home, working from chambers. There hasn't been the kind of locked Supreme Court building that means that uh, everything is necessarily in-house. And so this is a weird time in the history of the court because whereas ordinarily you would not see documents, for instance, in a justice's living room or in their dumpster, uh, you just might in this case. And that's raises, you know, the, the question of, because you asked about surveillance cameras, things are not necessarily happening in the building in the midst of COVID. And we should remember this case was argued uh, as Omicron was peaking. And so certainly the justices could have been working from home. I think the larger sort of question you're asking, the sort of Colonel Mustard in, with a, you know, uh, lead pipe in the ballroom question, is really comes down to it almost had to be either a justice or a clerk 
Those are the folks who are swapping drafts around. The justices themselves are the only ones in the conference room when they debate these cases. Uh, certainly their clerks have their hands on the opinions. It is very unlikely, in my view, that it's a janitor or somebody who's uh, you know, on staff because the justices are very meticulous about not letting draft opinions get into those people's hands. So most of the folks who are trying to figure it out and try Trust me, there are rabbit holes after rabbit holes on the internet trying to figure this out. Most people think it was very likely a justice, possibly a clerk. Um, Tom Goldstein, who uh, runs SCOTUS blog, which is a Supreme Court website, posted something suggesting that there may have been up to three leaks because it looks as though the Wall Street Journal knew a week ago that this was happening based on an op-ed that they wrote a week ago, and that there may have been leaks responding to those leaks in terms of the Politico leaks. And I'd note, too, there was a CNN leak late Monday night uh, when we found out what the Chief Justice was doing. So we may be talking about three or four leakers and counter-leakers and retaliatory leakers, and whether the Supreme Court's own in-house um, uh, law enforcement folks are really up to the task of doing a very, very meticulous and scrupulous uh, investigation uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, the fact that they didn't call in the FBI suggests that maybe they really don't want to catch the leaker. Well, I think it raises really hard questions. And you and I have talked about this before, but it raises very hard questions about the fact that the Supreme Court, for instance, doesn't have an inspector general. You know, after Watergate, um, it was very, very clear that um, different uh, agencies and entities needed an inspector general. It doesn't have an ethics code that it applies to itself. The federal law about a judicial recusal the justices do not apply to themselves. There are a lot of norms of transparency and openness and disclosure that in every other branch of government we expect and they are enforced even if poorly. At the court, the rules have kind of been wild westy. Uh, the idea is the justices police themselves. And if you recall, uh, there was a big commission that President Biden put together of you know, blue ribbon scholars and thinkers and uh, advocates. And they came up with a whole raft of ideas about how the court could bolster public uh, confidence in the court by, you know, we, famously they were debating packing the court, adding seats, but some of their other rules were just about transparency and self-policing and having systems in place whereby people could be confident that justices were following the rules of the road. And none of those um, have been, obviously none of them have been imposed, but it goes to this larger question of the court has been policing itself fundamentally for 200 years and has no interest in having outside um, entities tell it how to do its business. And so I think what you're describing is that very deep sense, I think the national sense, that the court is a law unto itself and therefore this investigation might not be a serious thing. And I don't think that the average American understands how this court works. Um, you and I have talked in the past about 
uh, politicization of the court and how public approval rating is um, similar to what Congress gets these days, which is not very high. So how do you respond to that? If you think about this term, the first Monday of October of the 2021 term that we're going to wrap at the end of June, the court, as you said, started the term with the lowest approval ratings in the history of Gallup polling. Uh, It was, to be clear, higher than the ratings uh, for Congress, but for the court, it was shatteringly low, and the court had dropped 20 points uh, in public opinion in a really short amount of time. And part of that is because of the reason that you're flagging, which is that this looks like a very, very political ideological court. Uh, Justice Sotomayor at the argument in this case we're discussing Dobbs talked about how the stench of politicization uh, was going to affect public confidence in the court for a long time to come. Part of it is that the court was deciding cases on what's called the shadow docket where they were reaching out and taking uh, cases that weren't fully briefed or argued and writing two paragraph orders that weren't signed So we're not even sure who wrote them or what the vote count was in major questions like the remain in Mexico policy or President Biden's eviction moratorium or SB8. That was the Texas uh, abortion, uh, quote unquote, bounty law. So the court in many ways has imposed this self-inflicted wound by behaving in a really partisan political way in a whole bunch of different areas, as we've talked about, and we haven't even mentioned that Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, was texting Mark Meadows with kind of ideas and thoughts about how to set aside the 2020 election results. So all of the, and Justice Thomas, I should note, sat on a case directly dealing with that issue without recusing. So all of these questions, all of these kind of different layers of the court behaving badly are self-inflicted wounds. And the court could tomorrow impose ethics rules, have meaningful recusal rules, have more transparency, uh, not decide cases on the shadow docket. All of those things could be done in ways that would bolster public confidence. But let's be really clear, when we read Justice Alito's opinion, it's very evident that this opinion in Dobbs, if it doesn't change, has no interest (laughs) in what the public thinks. Indeed, Justice Alito writes... We don't much care. We can't figure out what public opinion is. It's not our problem if you don't like it. And I think that that's kind of the vibe at the court right now, that we have the power to do what we want to do, and the emperor may or may not be wearing clothes, but there's nothing the public can do about it. And that's regrettable at so many levels because the rule of law depends entirely on the public acceding to the court's legitimacy. And public opinion is another reason why there are law enforcement professionals concerned about the safety of these justices as the world now awaits the final decision on Roe v. Wade. That That's right. And I think that we should be 
really honest and say that as Twitter works away to try to solve the mystery of who it is that leaked this, uh, it's not that just the justices who are getting threats. It's their clerks. Uh, every day there's some other crackpot theory of which clerk it was based on usually nothing. And then Twitter goes crazy. And these clerks are, you know, for your purposes and mine, like little kids, they're right out of law school. They don't have marshals to, to protect them. And I think that this is one of the reasons there's massive fencing that has gone up around the court um, just in the past day. And it really is good for absolutely nobody to have the cornerstone, the sort of emblem of rule of law in the country, uh, under feeling under siege with threats and with massive, massive public doubt that it can do its job in a uh, neutral and nonpartisan manner. It's no matter how this ends up, I guess I'm what is what I'm saying. This is a huge black eye for the court. Dahlia Lithwick, thanks again. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. go back in the CBS News time machine to the day Roe v. Wade became law of the land in 1973. Anchor Walter Cronkite led our coverage. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. More on this story from George Herman. In two related cases and eight separate opinions, the nine justices made abortion largely a private matter and ordered the states to make no laws forbidding it, except possibly during the final months. The court split seven to two with Justices Byron White and William Rehnquist dissenting. In effect, the court makes abortion subject only to the decision of the pregnant woman's doctor. It ruled that states may make no laws restricting a doctor's right to decide his patient needs an abortion and to carry out that abortion during the first three months of a pregnancy. After that comparatively safe three-month period, abortions may be regulated, but not prohibited by state law and for the benefit of the mother's health alone. Abortion is somewhat more dangerous at this stage, and states may insist, for example, that they be performed in regulated hospitals. Only in the final stages of pregnancy may states intervene and say no to abortion. The court's decision, written by Justice Blackmun, thus sets limits on the right to abortion on demand. One limit is the time when doctors believe the fetus may be able to survive outside the mother's womb. At that point, usually in the seventh month of pregnancy, the state may take legal action to protect the unborn child, even forbidding abortion, except to protect the mother. The newly liberalized abortion law brought immediate reaction. I think that uh, to raise the dignity of a woman and give her freedom of choice in this area is an extraordinary event. And I think that January 22, 1973 would be an historic day. In this instance, the Supreme Court has withdrawn protection for the human rights of unborn children, and it is teaching people that abortion is a rather innocuous procedure provided that there are proper legal safeguards. I think that the judgment of the court will do a great deal to tear down the respect previously accorded human life in our culture. One of today's plaintiffs was an anonymous former mental patient identified only as Mary Doe, 22 years old. CBS News correspondent Fred Graham talked with her recently. Now, the first two children you'd had, had they been taken away from you? 
Yes, because I couldn't take care of him by myself and I couldn't with my husband. And then I believe you had one more and it was also put out for adoption, wasn't it? Yes, I put it out because of my husband. Now, after you were unable to get the abortion for the fourth pregnancy, what happened? Well, I had to go on and have the baby and have it uh, adopted out. New York State, among others, already have liberalized abortions. Now the rest of the country must follow suit. The White House offered no comment, but President Nixon has always strongly opposed liberalized abortion. Other opponents are now talking of a constitutional amendment to reverse today's ruling. Until then, if the experience of New York State is any guide, America will eventually have one abortion for every two births. George Herman, CBS News, Washington. Let's continue to examine the fallout after the draft opinion on Roe v. Wade was leaked to the media this week. Carol Tobias is the president of the National Right to Life Committee. Carol, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for having me on. All right. So you, you've had a few days for all of this to sink in. What are your thoughts? Well, I've been asked a couple of times, actually, why we don't seem to be more excited. And I would just say, you know, we haven't seen the final decision yet. So I am cautiously optimistic. I love what we saw earlier in the week, but until the Supreme Court issues its final decision, I'm not jumping up and down. I'm going to wait to see um, what they say. All right, you might not be jumping up and down, but you must have a smile on your face. I'm sure you've worked for years to see a day like this. I have. Um, National Right to Life is the oldest organization in the country, started in 1968, so we've been working on this for a long time. I've been the president of the organization for 11 years. Um, so yes, we are, we are excited. We certainly hope that what we saw earlier this week is going to be the, the final uh, decision, but uh, we realize we still have a lot of work ahead of us. So it's not like our job is done now because, you know, hopefully Roe v. Wade has been overturned. In what ways... In your opinion, has anti or have anti-abortion rights groups succeeded getting to the point that we're at now this week with this draft opinion uh, going public and the possibility that Roe v. Wade could be struck down in a matter of, of weeks? We have been working a long time on legislation to protect babies in the ways that we can, given the strict limits that the Supreme Court placed on uh, pro-life laws, we've also done a lot of educating. So people around the country are seeing pictures of unborn babies, and they are hearing that these these babies have um, fingerprints and and toes and heartbeats. Uh, we've got the I believe technology has been a great asset for our movement. Uh, because we are seeing pictures of unborn children before they are born. Um, you can see the faces and maybe even a, a high five or you know something in, uh, in the womb coming from the baby. Um, so I think we just have such a large, uh, there is such a large number of people in this country that understand we're talking about human beings. They're small, they're vulnerable, but they deserve protection. And I think that has gone a long way toward getting people kind of prepared that this day may come and it's going to be okay. And yet there is research out there that shows that abortion bans and restrictions are still deeply unpopular. How do you respond to that? It depends on how you ask the question or you have to look at some of the, the details. 
I'm surprised, you know, I mean, people will say that they support Roe v. Wade or they don't think it should be overturned. But then if you look even in the same poll and you ask, should there be limits on abortion? Most of the people will say yes. There is a very small minority in this country that thinks abortion should be allowed for any reason for all nine months of pregnancy, which quite frankly is what we have with Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. So we've got people who aren't where I am wanting to protect you know, all the babies, but they are certainly going to be comfortable with reversing Roe v. Wade if that means some protections can be given to unborn children. A Gallup poll, I'm going to break out more statistics here. A Gallup poll finds that 80% of the American public thinks that abortion should be legal. That's that's a pretty big number. How do you how do you counter that? They Gallup though usually breaks it down and asks if someone says that abortion should be legal, then they will say should it be legal in all circumstances or in some circumstances? And a majority of those people will say some circumstances that they would place limits on and frequently it's going to be at around three months. But uh, the Gallup poll has, has been pretty clear that you can get a large segment of the population that is not happy or not satisfied with the way abortion is practiced today. What is it that brought you to this um to this issue, to this fight, you've invested a lot of your life in this movement. What is it that brought you to the movement? I was very young and saw a picture of an aborted baby right next to a picture of a healthy unborn baby about the same age. And it just shocked me. I thought, why are we doing this? And it just kind of drew me into the movement um, plus, my family was involved, so that was also, you know, um, a helpful indicator. But, but it was a picture that showed what we were doing to the unborn babies, and I just, I've never been able to get that out of my mind. Uh, we're killing innocent human beings, and if I can help to stop it, I mean, this is the biggest, greatest civil rights battle, probably not in the country, but even in the world in, in many ways. Um, we've got an entire class of citizens that can be killed at will. Uh, and I just, I'm, I'm doing what I can to stop it. Ahead of what could be a final decision on Roe v. Wade, there is concern about violence. Um, how do you feel about how this issue is so emotional? Um, people on both sides, um, and the prospect that there could be violence heading into what, you know, when this decision is announced. You know, there can be violence on both sides, but quite frankly, it's coming from the supporters of abortion. We are seeing, you know, yesterday, today, calls to march and rally and protest in some of the larger cities. The home addresses of Supreme Court justices have been publicized. Uh, people being encouraged to go to the homes and cause trouble. Um, the justices have had their names and pictures on social media with, you know, thoughts and, you know, wondering how we can kill them. Um, there's a lot of violence, but it, it's coming from our opponents. You know, they're, they're upset that this decision may come down the way it, you know, appears. Um, but 
I just I don't think there's any any excuse for the way they are acting and responding. Well, I don't know if it's fair to say that it's coming from uh, opponents, your opponents. I mean, if if you look at the history on this issue, a lot of the violence has been aimed at abortion providers. There has been some, but the pro-life movement has been united in condemning any kind of violence. They're they're the outliers um, that have taken you know individual steps, but that is not the pro-life movement, and we have quickly and loudly condemned any violence against any individual in this battle. Carol, what is next for the National Right to Life Committee? We are probably, I would say, uniquely set up uh, for a pro-life organization because we have the national organization, we have an affiliate in each of the 50 states, and we have chapters on the ground working in their communities, educating, lobbying elected officials. Uh, So we are primed and ready to go uh, if the Supreme Court gives us more opportunities Uh, to protect more babies, we're going to do it. Um, We're working with our state affiliates and our chapters to, you know, make sure that we're, we're doing, using our best resources and our best time to the best efforts. Mm -hmm. So if the Supreme Court does indeed strike down Roe v. Wade, the next battle uh, for your committee is to help efforts state to state across the country. Yes, it is. And and I've been very happy. Several of our state affiliates are working with their state legislators or state governments to make resources available, uh, many or or make known the the resources that are already available, so that a woman who is considering an abortion can find that there are other options, there are alternatives, there is support help, uh, support and help available for her. Um, there's just a lot of things that are, I think, going to change, and they're all going to be for the better for our society. Do you have any theories as to how this thing may have leaked from the Supreme Court, which is uh, unprecedented in so many ways? I, I do not. I've been trying to figure out who would benefit from knowing this information in advance, you know, if it's still the final decision. Um, and I just, I don't know which side gains or if anybody gains. I just don't know if, if there was a purpose to it or someone just thought they could do it and they'd like to blow up the country or blow up the Supreme Court, you know, not, not blow up literally, but, you know, just blow up the, the reputation of the institution. I mean, I just, I, I don't know. And over the past several days, have you gathered at the steps of the Supreme Court yourself? I have not. Uh, I have actually been too busy talking to reporters and <laughs> trying to um, get it, get the information out there that you know this is a op- great opportunity for America to once again respect innocent human life and to you know make a difference and shine a light for the rest of the world. All right, Carol Tobias, thank you for your time. Deontay Metzger is the Director of State Advocacy Communication for Planned Parenthood Federation of America and Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. All right. So what what do you make of this draft opinion? It's shocking and it's devastating to read what was in the opinion that was leaked this week. You know, we've never had, we've never lost a constitutional right before. And even though 
people in the abortion rights movement have seen the writing on the wall for decades, it's no less devastating to see the words in black and white um, when their opinion was leaked. So, you know, we're thinking right now about what we can do next, um, how we can channel the anger and the pain that people are experiencing into real action. Because at the end of the day, the majority of Americans do not support um, the overturning of Roe. The majority of Americans want abortion to be legal and politicians will definitely be held to account um, when they do move to ban abortion should Roe be overturned. This is just a draft opinion, we're told. This is not final. That's what the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court said. Um, does does that give you any comfort? Or are you, you mobilizing for the next step, expecting this become, to become final? Yes, we've, we've known for a long time that this was the end goal of the anti-abortion movement. And while, yes, this is a draft opinion and nothing is final until it's final, this is the outcome that we've been expecting for a long time. So, you know, right now it's about making sure that people know that abortion is legal right now, but also reminding people that in the next few weeks, if we do get if we do get an opinion that overturns Roe, that we will have to do everything to fight for our rights to control our bodies. Well, isn't this, I mean, if you look at what's happening across the country, would you agree that the anti-abortion rights uh, groups have been winning this battle? I think that the anti-abortion rights movement has been very strategic. You know, they have been playing a 40-year campaign. Um, They have sought to concentrate power to use the levers of government um, and have folks like Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump um, do the dirty work and appoint justices that they knew were going to be hostile to abortion rights. And right now we are seeing the culmination of that fight. And so I do think that, of course, you know, on our side, we need people to be mobilized and need them to be engaged on this issue all the time. Um, And right now, people finally are waking up to what has happened. And so, yes, while we do expect Roe v. Wade to be overturned, we know that this, is, this, that this will not be the last word on this issue and that in states across the country, we do expect people to turn out and make clear that they, do, that they do not want abortion to be banned in their state. And hopefully we can, down the line, rebuild into something better that will protect people's rights. Do you think Congress has a role right now with this issue? Yes. Well, I mean, there is the Women's Health Protection Act, which would codify Roe v. Wade into federal law and prevent states from banning abortion. It was, of course, um, up for a vote in the Senate earlier this year and failed, even though it passed the House. And Leader Schumer has said that he will bring it up for a vote again. And while we still do not have the 60 votes required to pass it, and it's unclear whether um, removing the the filibuster is even an option, I think it's important to get our lawmakers on record to have them vote on this issue so that people know in November when we have elections who was on the right side of history and who wasn't. So even though the Women's Self-Protection Act may not pass, it's important that we still hold a vote on it and get Congress members on record um, for this legislation. Do you see uh, your supporters mobilizing already for the midterms as a result of this draft opinion? Yes, that's absolutely the goal. You know, people are angry. We saw on Monday night when the opinion leaked that folks went to the Supreme Court by the thousands. And then the following day in states across the country, there were rallies at town squares and federal courthouses. And it's really going to be incumbent on us um, who lead in the movement to make sure that we keep up that energy so that people 
when they head to the polls in November remember this and remember how they felt when they read that opinion and heard that Roe would probably be overturned. So we're going to do everything we can to keep it up. Um, and we're sure that, you know, when the final opinion does come down, whether that be in June or July, that that'll be another key moment for us to mobilize and capitalize on the anger and pain that people are experiencing right now. How did you feel when you read that draft opinion on Monday? I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it's one thing to know that this was going to be the outcome, most likely, but to see it in black and white, and to read and and to also, I think, read the hostility in the words that were used um, by Justice Alito, it was jarring, you know, we were preparing for every scenario, um, most of them bad, but I think that we were all very much taken aback um, reading that document, even though, again, we expected this to be the outcome. And again, it's not final, but you know, it was it was it was a shock to read for sure. What hostility are you referring to in that document, in the draft opinion written by Justice Alito? Yeah, I mean, there was he used a lot of rhetoric that the anti-abortion movement uses all the time, so that was definitely tough to read. Um, he, just basically saying that Roe was egregiously wrong from the start is a tough thing to read, um, and then basically saying that you know we do not have control over our bodies, that these constitutional freedoms that we have enjoyed for the past 49 years don't actually exist, and basically erasing us from the Constitution, erasing people who, erasing women and people who want to control their own lives and thinking through, you know, the slippery slope that might lead to other freedoms that we enjoy today being erased was really scary to read. You, you have said that anti-abortion rights groups have been really strategic. Um, what about pro, pro-abortion rights groups? What, what, where do you think the approaches uh, that pro-rights, pro-abortion rights groups have taken have failed? I think that on the pro-abortion rights side, we for too long thought that the courts were a backstop. We believed that Roe was precedent, that it would be respected, and that we had crossed that bridge already. Um, It wasn't until about a decade ago when states started passing a host of restrictions on abortion, whether it be 24-hour waiting periods or 72-hour waiting periods, mandatory ultrasounds, um, all these restrictions that made abortion a lot more difficult to access. Um, And then at that point, we, of course, afterwards saw saw, um, that Mitch McConnell blocked a number of federal court justices from being confirmed during the Obama administration. And then when Trump was in office, more than 200 federal federal judges were affirmed. And then the Supreme Court, um, three Trump appointees are on there. Um, So I think that, you know, we always thought that the courts would save us. um, But the anti-abortion rights movement Obviously, we're looking at the courts as well and appointing their folks. And so I think that on our side, we um, are now realizing that the courts are not going to save us. We need to save it. We need to save ourselves. Um, And so for the past few years, we've been ramping up and doing just that and where we can shoring up access in states where we do have champions of reproductive rights. But um, in states where we do not, we are going to be mobilizing in elections and continuing to elect those who will support us and stand up for what we deserve. Is I, I was looking um, at some information the other day, and I, I think what it indicated is that a majority of states now have anti-abortion legislation. Is that accurate? Is, is, are you aware of that, or, or am I... Am I misquoting something? But it it seems to me the majority of states in this country now have some sort of anti-abortion legislation on the books, making it 
more difficult for women uh, to make the choice that they want to make. Yes. No, I mean, this session alone, we've seen more than 500 abortion restrictions introduced in 42 states. Not all of those have been enacted or passed, but that is a huge number, of course. So, so yes, you know, we, we are very concerned about that. And in the past um, decade, 200 restrictions have gone into effect. So yes, it has been for us, we've seen the slow chipping away of the right to abortion um, by passing these restrictions that make it more difficult to access care. And now if this leaked opinion shows what we all think it will show in the final decision, um, we're going to see the nail in the coffin um, for Roe v. Wade and for abortion rights in general. That's good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.